That's enough. I'm just kidding. Good morning. Oh, okay. No, that was good. No, touche. No, touche. Good morning. That's good. Hey, good morning, everybody. Um, my name is uh, Matthew Von Stein, and my wife and three uh, wonderful boys call uh, Grace Fellowship our home. I'm on the teaching team here at Grace Fellowship as well as the area director for Young Life uh, here mm-hmm. uh, for, you can smatter, you can smatter, thank you, um, for Young Life here in, in Southern York. Hey, a couple years ago, um, I had uh, the honor of, of being up here and I shared a message and uh, it's application, I'm sure you remember, uh, the application of that message uh, was, who, who do you see? Uh, as Christ enters into our life uh, and he gives us a new lens in which we see relationships and our work and our families and our pain and all of those different things, um, he begins to place on our hearts, uh, he gives us his eyes, his heart. And so my question was, who do you see? Who is he calling you to uh, pursue, to step towards? And this morning, I've been given a unique opportunity to share with you a little bit of, uh, for this season of my life, over the past 10 or so years, who God um, has placed on my heart, who I see. And uh, at the same time, uh, what I would love to do is stay close to God's word and to share with you uh, a, a powerful, a beautiful account of Christ's pursuit of um, someone. So my goal this morning would be twofold, if you would enter into this with me. I would love it if by the time I was done this morning that you saw young people differently. But I also at the same time would hope that you would continue to ask yourself that same question. Who do, who do you see? Who is God placing on your heart uh, to pursue and to love? Does that make sense? If it doesn't, we can go now. Yeah, I should be careful with that. You're like, it doesn't make sense. Um, so, uh, you know, before I begin talking about adolescence, for, so for the past 10, 12, uh, well, I guess it's maybe 14 years now, actually, I have been um, uh, mentoring and walking alongside of high school and middle school age uh, children, a- as well as training and equipping the adults, both young and old, who um, will step into the lives of adolescents and mentor them and love them. And as I have the privilege of sharing with you a little bit of my heart, I just want to recognize that here at Grace Fellowship, that we are a part of a body of believers who have adults and individuals who have changed the trajectory of their lives to pour into and nurture the students that are not only a part of this church, but a part of our community. The adults that you have in Alex and his team, Lori and Phil, the team that you have in Tara Farmer, and the children, can we just recognize them and honor them for what they do? Amen. I thought um, that in order to spur your hearts on a little bit um, about uh, teens, that I would actually show you a couple pictures of, of a teen in crisis. Um, so this, this is me uh, when I was about 16 years old, and um, I'm at Hershey Park with some of my teachers and fellow students, and I asked my friends that, hey, I'm going to go point at my teacher's 
bottom, and I'm going to give a thumbs up. You're going to take a picture. Okay. Um, and then this next one, this, was, I, this is when I was in my, like, real, that real cliche. Every teenager kind of has that sec security guard phase. And, and I, that's where I was. Um, this was before cell phones, um, and there was no one else in this room. So I set up a camera and took that picture. Okay. And then, um, and then this, this next one is, that's, this is kind of like the, mm, uh, I'm, I don't know what I'm doing there. I'm leaning against my 1992 Pull Me Over Civic. <laughs> the number's there, 7775. That represents how much I paid in speeding tickets. Um, and uh, I'm flashing signs, but I, I'm telling you, I have no idea what I'm doing. I, I just, I did like a peace sign, and a, during the first service when I showed this, some people just started leaving. They're like, no, I can't, I'm not going to listen to this guy. Um, I'm just kidding. Uh, my hope is that you would see this and be like, what can, we, what can we do to make sure this never happens again? <laughs> Grow up, I heard somebody say <laughs> Um, I'd like to read for us uh, John, uh, a story out of John, half, John chapter 4. And uh, so if you would follow along with me, I'm going to read this to you. Uh, and I hope that you would enter into it. Uh, it's a powerful, powerful account. Now Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that he was gaining and baptizing more disciples than John. Although in fact it was not Jesus who baptized but his disciples so he left Judea and he went back once more into Galilee now he had to go through Samaria so he came to a town in Samaria called Sakar near a plot of ground Jacob had given to his son Joseph Jacob's well was there and Jesus tired as he was from the journey sat down by the well it was about noon when a Samaritan woman came to draw water listen to this conversation Jesus said to her, will you give me a drink? His disciples had gone into town to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, you are a Jew, and I am a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it, who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. Sir, the woman said, you have nothing to draw with, and this well is deep. Where can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did also his sons and his livestock? Jesus answered, everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks the water that I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. He told her, You are right when you, uh, oh, go and call your husband and come back. I have no husband, she replied. She said, he, Jesus said to her, You are right when you say you have no husband. The fact is, you have had five husbands, and the man you now have is not your husband. What you have said is quite true. Sir, the woman said, I can see that you are a prophet. Our ancestors worshipped on this mountain, but you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. Woman, 
Jesus replied. Believe me, a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. Yet a time is coming and has now come when the true worshipers will worship the Father in the spirit and in truth. For they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. God is spirit and his worshipers must worship in the spirit and in truth. The woman said, I know that Messiah, called Christ, is coming. When he comes, he will explain everything to us. Now just imagine you had the pleasure of being with Jesus when he says this. And then Jesus declared, I, the one speaking to you, am he. Many of the Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me everything I did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they urged him to stay with them, and he stayed two days. And because of his words, many more became believers. They said to the woman, we no longer believe just because of what you said. Now we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this man really is the savior of the world. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word. It is a gift to us. God, we thank you that you have written us this love letter. God, I ask that your Holy Spirit would be at work in us this morning. As we dive into what you have for us, would you grow our hearts for you and for others? We love you. In Jesus' name, amen. There are, uh, this is a familiar story to many of you. It's one of my uh, just favorite uh, accounts to uh, talk about. Uh, there are two things that I would love for uh, all of us to see this morning. Uh, is both the urgency in which Jesus went into Samaria and also the power uh, that he went into Samaria with. Um, I, I don't know if you saw, but I bolded in the beginning on that first slide um, the, the sentence, Jesus had to go to Samaria. Um, and comment, those who have written the commentaries and study this always point out that it's sort of a unique um, sentence because uh, Jesus did not have to go into Samaria. In fact, um, it was the shortest route between Jerusalem and Galilee, and that's where he's headed. You would go through Samaria, but what historians tell us is that a lot of Jews would actually take this really long detour around Samaria. They would cross the Jordan in order to avoid the Samaritans, for they, they, they were enemies. They didn't associate with one another. And we could go on and on about why and all of that, but I think most simply to know is that the, Samaria, the Samaritans were a mixed-race people. They, uh, they were partly Jewish, and they were partly Gentile. And so there were racial tensions and obstacles there, uh, and cultural obstacles. But not just that, that they, they were disdained by both the Jewish community for not only racial issues, but also religious differences and disagreements, but they were also just disdained uh, from the Gentile community as well. So there are, are serious reasons why a, a Jewish person would go around Samaria. I'm so thankful that we live in a time today where there are no such things as racial barriers and obstacles and cultural issues and religious divide. Sarcasm. But he said he had to go, right? He had to go there. And all throughout the, uh, the New Testament, we see that Jesus is always talking about his union with the Father, right? I and the Father, we're, we are one. I love him and he loves me. And Jesus goes in this just beautiful obedience, not, not a robotic obedience, but this, this obedience of love 
And isn't it awesome that throughout the New Testament, we see Jesus just, he's just in sync with the Father, where he goes and where he doesn't and where he stays and where he leaves. And here, Jesus says, in a sense, we've got to go. We have to go into Samaria. Because it wasn't just racial obstacles that were in the, excuse me, cultural ones or all of those different things. But we find out, too, that she even reacts to other obstacles when when he's talking to her. She goes, how are you talking to me, a Jewish man? There's a, there's a gender obstacle here, too, because of the way women were seen. And not just that. Soon we're going to discover, why is she drawing water at the hottest part of the day? And we discover that there's this brokenness and this shame that something is going on in her life. And a lot of people like to draw conjecture over, like, what, what, why did this woman have five different husbands? And what was going on? Was it rejection? Was it her inability to bear children? On, but whatever it is, we know that that well is a place of shame for her because she is avoiding now her own community. Because they wouldn't have drawn water in the hottest part of the day. It would have been in the beginning of the day. And so now, uh, what, what would have the Jewish uh, elite, in a sense, um, some of those Pharisees that we see in the rest of um, the New Testament, what would they have said about her? They would have called her a what? A sinner. So obstacle after obstacle, barrier after barrier. And what does that sentence say? Jesus had to go. Imagine him talking to his disciples, right? Like, hey, we're going to go into Samaria. I mean, what, what, how, how would we respond to that today? It would be this. Them, right? They're full of those. Come on, Jesus. Like, like it, you know, it's actually easier if we cross the Jordan and, and just go around. Jesus, no, 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 we have to go. You know, and I think in a lot of ways, it, you know, Samaria, Samaria was just not worth it. It was too hard, too many obstacles. And I think in society, do we have Samarias in our society today? One group of people or individuals just not seeing one another beyond the labels we give them as a whole. All of those sorts of different things. I think we sort of, we swallow those things like a pill. We accept them as a whole. And I think in a lot of ways, adolescent culture has become much like a Samaria for a lot of adults. Do you feel it sometimes? It doesn't mean you don't love them, don't care for them, have concern for them. But there is a growing divide between the adolescent world and the adult world. And I'm not talking about a divide of proximity. I don't mean that young people are not around adults, but a partnership, a connection. And so just, and I think about it, man, the Samaria of adolescence. Think about these disciples as they went there. I I remember the very first time when um, I was new on staff with Young Life, and I got into my wife's 1993 Ford Escort, where the the seatbelt, like, still did the thing for you. Um... It was awesome to pick people up, and they had never seen one of those before, and it just kind of hits them in the face with a seatbelt. It was great. And, uh, and I remember driving to the school for the very first time because, man, how are we going to reach unchurched, disinterested, um, uncon- like just kids that are disconnected from the local body that don't know how we, we've got to be a presence. We have to be at the school. We have to get to know the, the teachers, the administration, and the kids. And so here I go. I'm going to drive my car to the school, and I'm going to go to a basketball game. And I remember it was right after school, and so I'm, I'm driving there, and I'm just thinking, like, what am I doing? Like, high school was not good for me. Like, what am I, why am I going back? You know, this is crazy. You know, and I pull up into the parking lot, and every car is nicer than the one I'm driving, you know. And I'm like, come on. You know, I'm using my feet to get it to go. And like, um, 
and, 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 I, and I park, and I remember the bell rings, and I'm like, get out of the car. Don't get out of the car. Don't get out of the car. Come on, get out of the car. I'm not getting out of the car. You know, I'm like, no, 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 no. And they just packed like all the, the teenagers walking past me. They just see some guy going, you know, like just grabbing the steering wheel, you know. And I remember going home. I never got out of the car. And I remember getting, going home, and Michelle was like, so how was your first day at the school? Who'd you meet? I'm like, I met the steering wheel, and then I came home, Okay. I, did, I never went in the school. And she's like, okay. So, you know, uh, just imagine the disciples, you know, Jesus, wouldn't it, just be, wouldn't it just be so easier if we avoided Samaria? I like to pause for a moment. Uh, this is what, a little bit of what I was talking about when I started. I want to put a spotlight on young people for a while, but I don't want you to stop asking the question, who do you see? Who is God drawing you towards? Look at the urgency that God went into Samaria. And so when I talk about adolescence, I mean, how many of you have ever said kids these days, right? It's a pretty ubiquitous statement. Or, or how about back when I was young? You know, I remember when I was a kid, all that kind of stuff. And look, I, like, I say those things now. And like, I, I can't wait till I'm, you know, 80 years old, sipping a coffee with Alex Gilbert, and we're like, ah, kids these days, you know? Like, we're going to do it, okay? It's going to happen. It's fine. And, you know, those things aren't exactly harmful, but they're just not always helpful. And wouldn't it be awesome if we just understood a little bit more of what adolescence is? So what I'm going to do is I'm going to kind of, I'm, I'm going to, I already talk a million miles per hour. So imagine me saying I'm going to go fast, okay? All right? So I'm going to go through this, and I'm going to talk to you a little bit of what I mean when I say adolescence. And so pretty much from antiquity until like the early 20th century, that's right, I said antiquity to the early 20th century, we lived in this really profound thing called, wait for it, community. All right? <laughs> All right? Now, it, and I'm not just saying religious community or irreligious community. We lived in community. All sorts of different people living inside that community. And as a result of living in community, the adults that lived inside that system all understood and all believed that it was the community's responsibility to help young people go from children to adult. Now, did you hear me say from children to adolescent to adult? No, there was no such thing. It was from dependent. Here, I, I made a very complicated graph, okay? So you, you see uh, that, that age, that 14, 15 years old is, is, is statistically what was the most average for when young men and women became physically adult. And they, whether it was through rites of passage, both religiously, vocationally, um, all, faith communities, all these different things had systems in place where, where young people were seen as capable. A 14-year-old, a 15-year-old seen as capable of, of, of quickly entering into the adult world interdependently. Make sense? So this, this is what, what I mean by adult. And, and mind you, parents from then until now have always had an incredible, incredible influence, the most profound influence on, on how young people are raised, but, but they're not alone in that process. So what is an adult? An adult is when culture affirms that someone has individuated in terms of identity, is willing to take responsibility for his or her own life choices, and has entered interdependently into the community and adult relationships. So not only does that now new adults see themselves as an adult, but the community around them recognizes them as an adult. 
And what happened uh, as you got into the 20th century is that the skills needed for adulthood continued to increase and increase. And at the same time, the, the sort of unfiltered social capital that, that young people received from the community and the adults around them continued to decrease and decrease. And so what happened is that by the mid-1990s, now I just fast-forwarded in a big way, didn't I? Into the mid-1990s, you see their age on that top line, um, and it must be very easy for you to read. I'm sorry I made that so small. Um, but in, by the mid-1990s, all of a sudden you had this thing called mid-adolescence. Now, if any of you here were a teenager, let's say in the 1960s and the 1970s, you were one of the first generations to be called a teenager because it was new. And what was new also in the 1990s is this began to stretch and stretch and stretch that that children who were dependent maternally on mom and dad um, did not did not now have within a society that sort of again that unfiltered social capital I'll say that a couple times that that idea of adults investing in them not just institutionally but investing in their development began to stretch and stretch and stretch until we had this thing called adolescence now going um, past their teens and into their early 20s and now in 2019 um, that has continued to stretch what do you think it is today? What, what, what is this? So we have now 12 years old all the way until what? What do you think? Yeah, 26 is, 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 pre, is pretty accurate. 26, 27 years old. I asked my wife for what mine would be, and she just said that it hasn't quite, she still hasn't seen my, you know. But listen, so, so, so what you have all of a sudden, this is what I want you to see, and I know I did that really quickly. And by the way, we could, spend, we could spend week after week after week in, in, a, in a room somewhere talking about the, all of the stuff, the very complex issues that have, have helped create this, okay? I'm not going there. But this is what I want you to see, is that all of a sudden, I want you to picture a young person walking that tightrope. This is new. We, we, we write a lot of articles about this massive cultural group in our country now, we compare them to a lot of different generations. The truth is, do you think that they are less in need of adults now? They are in desperate need for adults in their life. Desperately. And if any, as we as the adult culture, I'm not saying you, I'm saying as adult culture, if we chastise this generation for, for not becoming adults, it's not a reflection on them, it's a reflection on us. They need us desperately. They were walking a tightrope. And what has this tightrope been like for teenagers? I want to read uh, some statistics to you, but I'm not doing it for shock value. But I want you to hear it. I want you to see it for a moment. In the next 24 hours, 1,000 439 teens will attempt suicide. 2,800 teenage girls will get pregnant. In the next 24 hours, 15,000 kids will try drugs for the first time. In the next 24 hours, 3,500 teens will run away from home and not ever return. 
in Young Life, some of my peers took um, some of students' Twitter posts, um, removed their names, um, and put them into a video. Now, we could talk about social media until we're blue in the face, right? And I'm not going there. However, it has been an outlet for many young people to go a little deeper into who they are and to expose some of what walking that tightrope has been like for them. Because that, that tightrope has insulated itself more and more and more from the adult community. Do you feel it? So I'd like us to peer in for just a moment. Watch this video. But you don't succeed When you get what you want But not what you need When you feel so tired But you can't sleep Stuck in rivers And the tears come streaming down your face When you lose something you can't replace When you love someone but it goes to waste Could it be worse? Lights
I think when we, when we look at that, well, first it's just sad, and it breaks our hearts. You, you know what I think is more interesting? <laughs> is it, did any of you see you up there? I, either in the past or even now, this morning? Were you up there? I, did you see the one that said, I just want to be loved for who I am? Is that a teenager problem? Some days I just want to rip people's heads off. <laughs> Is that just a teenager problem? <laughs> did you see yourself up there? Imagine Jesus standing outside of Jerusalem looking towards Galilee, knowing, knowing that Samaria is in between. Did you see the one tweet that said, someone please just save me? Could you imagine Jesus going, guys, we have to go. We have to. And the disciples going, not them. Not those. You know, if I think if Jesus had the time, or maybe he did, is he would have showed them something like this. You know what I mean? That woman at that well, she's just like you. She's no different than you. She has the same hurt, the same pain, and she is insulating herself from those things as best she can. And your labels of her, the way you see her, the way society, all of those things, all of that is just getting in the way. Guys, we've got to go. We've got to go. Isn't it amazing to think that at one point in our lives, um, maybe even this morning, but it, for many of us before, that that's the way Jesus saw us in our wells, at our wells, of shame or brokenness or desire or despair, whatever it is that was going on in our, in our lives. And Jesus said, I've got to go. I'm going right after him. I'm going right after her. Pastor Ben Lawrence sent me this, you know, haven't you ever read some of the poems by Shel Silverstein? Uh, such goofy stuff, but he has such a great heart, uh, and his name was Shell. Um, and this little, this poem called The Little Boy and the Old Man. May I read it to you? Little boy to the old man. Sometimes I drop my spoon, said the old man. I do that too. The little boy whispered, I wet my pants. I do that too, laughed the old man. <laughs> Said the little boy, I often cry. And the old man nodded, so do I. But worst of all, said the boy, it seems that grown-ups don't pay attention to me. And he felt the warmth of a wrinkled old hand. I know what you mean, said the little old man. I think the beauty of a moment like this, while am I shining a spotlight on young people? Yeah, of course. I want you to see them. But the truth is that wherever our Samaria is, whoever that woman at the well is for you, we, we first have to realize that it's us first, right? That that's me. That Jesus has done something incredible. He pursued me at whatever cost. 
I think that as we begin to ask more and more about what, what is our Samaria, who is the woman at the well for you, I think about what are some of the, I think about all those obstacles again. And I said I wanted us to see both urgency and power. And so do you see the urgency here that Jesus had? And, and I think that sometimes the, 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 the hardest step towards whatever the Samaria is in or around you or in our community is always the very first one. I think quick, I think we are quick to think about what organization or cause or, or workshop or sign-up sheet that we, we need to figure out to become a part of some great cause, but when, when really the most impactful, powerful thing you can do is that when that young person walks past you that you've seen over and over and over again, that you would just say, hi, Right? Because we don't, we don't do that alone. The Holy Spirit is with us. I don't, know, I don't know how to love on a kid. I don't know how to love on this neighbor. I don't know what to do with this coworker. I don't understand their lives. And the beauty is God, and this is my second point, is that Jesus goes into Samaria in power. And the conversation begins, right? He goes tired and thirsty. Isn't it neat to see our Savior tired and thirsty? And he goes... And he stands uh, and sits at this well with this woman as she comes to draw water and in this place of brokenness and shame as she avoids the community around her. And uh, what Jesus does is incredible. The minute she shows up, he condemns her for his sin. He says, disciples, let's roll. And then he heads to Galilee. He goes, that's why I came here. He is so incredibly patient with her, is he not? He's kind. He loves her desperately. And he's not there just to deliver information. He doesn't want her just to hear something. He, he's waiting until the ears and the eyes of her heart begin to understand who he is and what he's offering. And he says to her, I've come to give you living water. And she answers it just practically, like instantaneously. She goes, I would like some of that, please. Well, Why? Because she hates coming here. It just reminds her over and over and over again. She's a Samaritan. She's a woman. She, she is broken. Over and over again, all she sees is why she's not good enough. Every single time she shows up here. So when he says that I've got something for you that won't make you thirsty anymore physically for water, she's like, I would like some of that. Please thank you. She goes, you don't have anything to draw with. Where can you get this? And Jesus just continues to listen. He's patient and he's kind because he loves her. Jeff's, uh, Pastor Jeff Smith said it last week that Jesus does not come just to make us stop sinning or to offer us religion as a fix for life, right? And he's not doing that with her either. He's willing to, t to do what it takes to earn the right. And the cool part uh, is that Jesus earns the right with people uh, almost if not instantaneously. He has an incredible privilege of being God, okay? And, and he, he's, he is going to stay in Samaria for two days. And I can tell you, Jesus doing anything for two days is like us doing a lifetime of ministry with people. He's willing to stick around until she understands, until her heart sees it. He, he is not trying to just... Um, kill her desires. Something's wrong. The, w w whatever's going on with all of these different men in her life, he's not trying to crush her desires and replace it with religion or even Christian behavior, but instead uh, and point her 
all of those things, her desires and her heart to him. He's saying, I am offering you a deep, soul-satisfying water that will never make you thirst again. I mean, how many of you have ever been just so desperately thirsty for actual water? You know what I mean? Like, ah, you just, it's all you can think about. I mean, we're made of almost all water, right? It's like when we, when we want it, when we don't have it, it's like, man, I just want a warm glass of milk. It's like, no, ugh. It's like, I just want a cold wonderful glass of water, and right, and when you get it, finally, you're just like, oh, just a little sip, just, right, no, you chug that thing, and it's the greatest ever, Jesus is saying to this woman, I am offering you something that your soul desires, like your body desires this water, and if you understood it, if you got it, you wouldn't just sip from it, you, you would just drink from it, all of it, over and over and over again. And you would never need to come back to this well or any other well. And then he says to her in his patience and love and wisdom, he says, go get your husband. And she says, I don't have one. And he said, yeah, that's true. The truth is that you've had five. And the man that you're with now isn't your husband. Now, I don't think a lot of us, but I've heard some uh, people when they, you know, when they read, oh, he got her, right? Got her. Can I tell you something? As a community, do we need to be edified and rebuked sometimes in our life? Yes. But l- hear me really, really clearly here. Jesus never takes advantage or shames vulnerable people. He never does that. That's not his goal. That's not his aim. This is not the same as maybe pulling a brother aside and saying, hey, I just need to, tr- I need to talk to you about this thing in your life and kind of call you out a little bit, right? This is a place of incredible hurt, incredible pain, and he's not drawing it out of her. So he'd be like, you see, sinner. She would have been like, thanks. I forgot why I came here in the middle of the day. Of course not. Never takes advantage of vulnerable people. He loves her desperately. And the reason that I believe that he calls out this brokenness in her life, whether or not she's a perpetrator or a victim of it, and likely it's both, right? Is I think in order for us to see what it is that he's offering, we have to realize that we're already chasing after it. In order for this woman to realize that, that her identity and her value and her purpose is not wrapped up in this brokenness, it's not wrapped up in the things that she's pursuing in these, in these husbands, we don't know what's, what's going on there, but for her to see, that, don't you see, you're already chasing after life, you're already looking for meaning, you're already looking for identity, you're already looking for purpose, and now you're already trying to insulate yourself from not being able to find it. I want you to see that you're already chasing after, and I'm offering you the only thing that is really going to satisfy you. We get this, right? Do you remember the, 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 your thirst when you came to God for the very first time? Do you remember the things that you were chasing after? Man, if I just had this, whether it was my, this career or this relationship or this athleticism or whatever it is, this relationship, this job, this stuff, and that God does not ignore those things. He doesn't, he doesn't skirt around our pain or our desires, but he gathers all of our pain, all of our desires, and just, just goes drives straight through in the middle of our hearts and goes, you don't understand, I'm offering you so much bigger. Do, do you remember the first time that you, when you realized what God was offering you? Living water. Something I didn't earn, something I didn't deserve, something given to me freely. 
he wants her to see that she's already chasing after it. Look, when, when adults step into the adolescent world, I, I have not once in, in my life, and I'm looking at Alex right now because I know he's going to get this, and, and Lori and all of them, like, just, you know, when, when is it helpful for an adult to step into a young life's person world and just shame them for their behavior? Wouldn't you just act better? Just come here, follow me, and reproduce my Christian behavior. You know, one of the most beautiful things about walking alongside of a young person is not to shame or condemn them for things, but to show them that God gets them. All that pursuit you're doing for life, all of the things that you're chasing after and wrapping your value around and wrapping your identity around, God, God gets it. You know why? Because he literally made you that way. He's designed you to chase after life. He's, a, he's designed you for life and life to the full, abundant life. God gets you. He gets you better than you get yourself. A, a, a process of, of not replacing our desires, but trusting our desires with him and realizing that they can be made, they can be fulfilled in him. And so Jesus points this out to her. If you want to discover what living water is, the most deep soul satisfaction, you have to see that you are already searching for it. You have to see that you are looking for that deep soul satisfaction and if you look for it anywhere else, you will be thirsty again. I've seen adults who are willing to not just pass on that information, but to share, but to share their, their very lives with kids. It, it does not, kids get a lot of information, you understand, both in and outside of the church. But adults who are willing, you guys get this, adults who are willing to stand alongside and say, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to not only meet you at your well, this place where you are, on your turf, in your place, you're worth it. You're worth breaking the barriers of the adolescent and the adult world. You're, you're worth the barrier of the fact that I, I can't believe I'm driving to this high school again, right? You're worth it. You're worth it. But you're not just worth hearing the information through my love and through my kindness and my patience. You're also worth it in that I'm going to invite you into my life. I'm going to invite you into my church because as they come here to Grace Fellowship, they begin to see, wow, they do, they do conflict differently. They look at vocation differently. They look at relationships differently. They, there's something that, that this gospel truth and this love and this living water, it's not just an eternal hope, but it's a present hope hope that can change our lives and young people need adults who are willing to say come into my house listen to me argue with my wife a little bit like come into it like we're not perfect like come do life with us see how we look at our children how we love how we thank how we forgive you see and Jesus was willing to do this with everyone he was with first Thessalonians 2 8 says this Paul was speaking to a church and he said we so cared for you. Listen to this. This, this is, Matt Fonsign, what's your favorite Bible verse in the Bible? This one. Okay, here we go. 1 Thessalonians 2.8. We so cared for you because we loved you so much that we were delighted to share with you not only the gospel, but our lives as well. I've heard a lot of adults say that they're not sure what they could offer young people. <laughs> and they say, I don't think I'm very cool. Well, they don't say cool anymore, so that's a first step. <laughs> you know what? You don't need to be cool. It's, it's Jesus in you and through you. 
And, and the Holy Spirit goes with you in power. Not just the urgency to go, not just because God has, has made us aware of the need and drawn us compassionate, but because we're willing to make that first step towards and we go in power. Man, God goes with me. And I do not see how this is going to help a teenager. I don't know. But God, I trust you. I trust that you are enough. That if I show up and I show up again and I'm patient and I'm kind, that God, you will do something through me. There were dozens of baptisms here the, uh, the other day. Alex Gilbert and his team baptized dozens of young people here, and over 250 of you were here to, to witness that, and it was beautiful. And as you heard some of the testimonies, what you didn't hear young people saying was, I am just so thankful for that funny game we played before Alex spoke. I am just so thankful for Gaga, Gaga Ball. And you, you, know, you know what you heard? I, I am so thankful for my leader, Joel. I wouldn't be here if it wasn't for my leader, Lori. I wouldn't be here. And, and all you heard were names, right, Alex? All you heard were names. Guys, I don't remember. He, he might listen to this one day. I don't remember one thing my youth pastor said. <laughs> you know what? I'm here today because my mom instilled in me the love of Jesus my whole life. But you know what? My mom would confess, and my dad too, that they were not perfect. And that they needed a body of believers who saw young people and believed that they were in desperate need for adults. And I'm here today because I grew up in a church that got that and understood it, like grace. I'm here because of Brian Cannell, who, who picked me up for breakfast in the beginning of my middle school years and in the beginning of high school and just let me hang out with him and his family. He listened to me. I'm here because of Jim Tuttle, who all through high school hung out with me, invited me into his life, got to know me. I was such a dork. Did you see those pictures? Okay? <laughs> I'm here because of Tim Frisbee, my very first Young Life leader a young college student who had a million other things to do than hang out with me. And he showed up at my school to hang out with me and to cheer me on as I sat on the bench. No one got that that was a joke. <laughs> Everyone's like, yes, yes. <laughs> hey, Tim, are you going to run? No. We're not losing or winning by enough. I'm just kidding. I wasn't that bad. I was pretty bad. All right. I'm here because of Matt Craig, a man who looked at me and thought that I was capable, a man who held a crown above my head and challenged me to grow up into it. And he said to me, Matt, I know you're only 19, but I think that you could actually have a pretty profound impact on young people. I am a young person, I know. But I want you to do this, do it with me. I don't have to do it alone, no. Where are we gonna go? Back to the school, I don't wanna go back to school. <laughs> come on, come with me. This woman deflects one more time. And she gets into a theological conversation with Jesus. Well, she tries. 
She goes, well, Jesus, um, do, do I worship in this temple or that temple? Which is the right temple? Because you Jews say this. And what I love about Jesus is he's not afraid of saying the truth. He goes, well, I mean, since you're asking, it's the one in Jerusalem. You're wrong. But do you know what he says in the exact same sentence? He says, but listen, look, there's going to be a day where you're not going to worship in this temple or that one. There's going to be a day where you don't need to step into a temple in order to have access to me. I'm going to be with you. You won't have to draw from living water. That living water will live inside of you. And what is he pointing towards? What is he trying to show her? Because he, he not only draws out her brokenness and that shame and that place of hurting, to hurt her, no, but for her to see that she's chasing after the thing that he's already offering her to satisfy with, but not just that. He wants to show her how it is that he can offer it to her in the first place. How can I offer you living water? And aren't we privileged to see the full story? What would Jesus say on the cross one day? He would say, I'm thirsty. And Jesus Christ would take upon himself the weight and the sin of the world and die and defeat death so that we could know our Father in heaven. That's why he can offer us living water. And that's why we don't need to be cool. That we get to bring that believers who have not just sipped, but just chugged down the living water and then found the pool of living water and just jumped into it. The stuff is so good. And as just soaking wet believers to go out into whatever Samaria that God is putting on your heart. Hey, look, if it's young people, awesome. but I know that, Samaria, that God is, is placing a Samaria on your heart. A woman at the well, maybe it's a person who nobody else sees. Maybe it's a people that people easily ignore or forget or make a detour around. I, I don't know if it's a neighbor that you just, just, I mean, why haven't you invited them over for dinner yet? You know what I mean? Just do it. Maybe it's an elderly person that you know is alone and lonely and broken in a home. Maybe it's a young person who walks through your neighborhood. Maybe it's a coworker that God has just continued to place on your heart. But I want you to hear these two things. One, if God's placed them on your heart, go now. He went urgently. He had to go. There was no waiting. It was time to go. She was going to draw from that well maybe for the last time. He had to go. But he, he brought living water, and that's what we get to do as believers. Paul said that we were equipped to do good works. So Grace Fellowship, would you go and desperately seek after the people and the places that God has placed on your heart and to know that you do not go alone, that you go in power. Do you remember that tweet? I just wish someone would come and save me. The cool thing is that you don't have to save them, but God wants to use you so that he can offer the world living water. 
Let's pray. God, I thank you that in one point of our life, we were all, even now, some of us, God, the woman at the well. And God, there was no obstacle, no lie that you were not willing to overcome and tear down in our minds and in our hearts. God, you have been patient with us, you have been kind to us, and you have pursued us day after day after day, not just the first time we met you, but every day since then and for the rest of eternity, God. We are worth it to you. And I thank you that you have made us worthy because of your death and resurrection from the cross. And God, I pray that as we soak in that truth, that, Lord, you would continue to help us identify where our Samarias are, where that woman at the well is, Lord. Would you give us eyes for her, for them? And would you help us go urgently and confidently in your power and in your name? Amen. Grace Fellowship, go in peace. If you would like anyone to pray for you, there will be people up here who would love to do so. Beautiful name.